Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. In this episode, I interview Diana Butler-Bass, and Diana is a well-known author. She's written a number of books about the changes occurring within Christianity. She has books like Christianity After Religion and uh, Grounded was her last book that she wrote, Uh, but she just recently wrote a new book called Grateful. And... So Diana and I talk about the way that gratefulness and gratitude is a posture of subversiveness in the age of Trump. And I just loved everything that we talked about. So uh, I'm excited for you all to listen in to that conversation. Also featured throughout this episode is my friend Tyler uh, from back home in, in South Dakota. And he has kind of this sort of project that he's worked on for a number of years called Peter and the Canary Keeper. And I think a lot of his kind of indie, folky, alternative sound is really unique. I love his take on, on that sort of genre of music. So I hope you enjoy all the music throughout the episode. And again, it's from Peter the Canary Keeper. And all the links for both Diana and for Peter the Canary Keeper, those links are in the description below, as well as the links for other bits of my work. I've written a number of papers and articles that you can get connected with on my website. I actually just recently have been writing uh, or releasing my paper on Quaker ecclesiology and its subversiveness. And if you know me, if you know me well, you know how much I freaking love Quaker ecclesiology. I'm like a a fangirl of it. Uh, And it's just so wonderful. So you should really check that out. But the way you can check that out is through my Patreon uh, for just $1 a month. $1 a month. I mean, just think about, like, you probably have found a dollar on the street this month. Uh, For that dollar amount, you can get an exclusive amount of of material and content from me, uh, including my papers and including some of my more of my articles. And you can also gain exclusive previews and access to uh, some religionless church episodes. So if you want all that sort of exclusive content, then for a $1 a month, you can support my work. But there's also other tiers, like the $5 a month and $10 a month one, and uh, I would highly recommend those ones as well, because those just help me out even a little bit more. So be sure to become a Patreon subscriber, and I would love it, uh, especially with all the college debt I owe. So uh, be sure to check out my Patreon. And without further ado again, here's Diana Butler-Bass on Religionless Church.
Today we have Diana Butler Bass, and Diana is an author, a speaker, and an independent scholar specializing in American religion and culture. And she just recently wrote the book Grateful, and the, which the subtitle is The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. And so Diana and I are going to be talking about her new book that is coming out. Um, in fact, it already has come out just a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. And so, Diana, you have a number of roles. You are a partner. You, I, are you a mother as well? I am. You're I a have mother. a st stepson and a daughter. My, my husband and I have a daughter together. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So. That's great. So I have one and a half kids. How about that? One and a half. <laughs> you didn't quite get the two and a half that uh, is the American standard, but you got, no. you got the one and a half, so you're almost there. Um, so you, you play a number of roles, so you're, you also are an author and a speaker and a scholar, uh, but I'm also interested, who is Diana Butler Bass to Diana Butler Bass? That's a, a great question, and um, I understand myself primarily as a person who has been on a journey. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see myself as a, a traveler. I'm not sure I like the word pilgrim anymore because it has too many associations of <laughs> colonialism. Totally. But, yep. it, but if we took the best kind of vision of that word, like back from Pilgrim's Progress or maybe from uh, Louise May Alcott's Little Women, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm a person who goes through the world never feeling entirely at home. Mm. And so I'm, I'm always moving and asking myself what, what, what is around the next corner. Mm. And that's not in a way of, of un being unappreciative of what is now, because I also really truly value the present moment, but mm -hmm. I'm highly aware of the fluidity of life. Mm -hmm. And so that is I understand myself in those ways. I also understand myself as a teacher. I started out when I was a little girl. I remember lining up my baby dolls. They <laughs> 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 were a classroom and and starting to be a teacher for my... Were, for... were you teaching them American religion? No, I didn't know that much about it then. I think I was teaching them the ABCs and math. <laughs> that, go for, that, so, that works. So, uh, So I've always been a person who loves sharing ideas with others and and helping other people discover um information and words and concepts that will change their lives hmm. so so i think i'm a traveler and a teacher so those two two t words which is kind of lovely i don't think i've ever used those in a sentence with with someone asking me a question like this well it's it sounds very poetic like like something that only an author would come up with the having <laughs> having those little two t's yeah, it's a it's a funny life, you know, being a being a writer. It's part of being a traveler and a teacher because you have to be able to frame up your story in order mm -hmm. to share it with others. Um, and so I was a, just this weekend, someone was asking me a question, and I realized that I have often struggled in my life with doing certain things because I, when I was, especially when I was little, uh, go, it goes into this book that we'll be talking about in a moment. I had a struggle writing thank you notes hmm. and. Part of the struggle came about because I felt so grateful when someone would give me a gift, but I never felt like I had words that were adequate to my feelings. 
Hmm. And, and so that's a kind of writer struggle. You know, that's actually, I think my failure to write thank you notes was probably my first ever episode of writer's block. <laughs> that. And I had never really thought about that until this, until this weekend when I was uh, presenting the new book at an event in Cleveland. And it was pretty fun when I <laughs> got, got to that moment. I, so I'm always teaching myself. And like I said, I never know what's around the next corner. So, so that's who I am. So uh, speaking about the book, you mentioned throughout your book, uh, your new book, Grateful, that uh, there's some really intriguing polling numbers uh, on gratitude. And so as you went into writing the book, what surprised you the most about gratitude in America? Well, those numbers really became the frame for Hmm. the book. Um, In November 2015, when I was just thinking about this project, it it wasn't full orbed yet. It was just Mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to write my next book about gratitude. Uh, There was this study that came out from Pew Research, and it showed that when asked the question to uh, Americans, of course, is a survey of American mm-hmm. respondents, uh, have you in the last week felt a strong sense of gratitude? 78% of Americans said that they had. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw that number and I went, eight out of 10? Are you kidding me? How can that is a huge number? And it's very unusual to get any number that's above 65% on pretty much mm-hmm. any, any question. How, but out, out of curiosity, how would you have responded to that question at the time that it was asked? Well, in the book, I admit that I wasn't sure that I would have been among the 8 out of 10. Mm. <laughs> that I mm-hmm. might have been the, the 20%. And so it surprised me how big it was. It made me feel guilty that I might not have answered it the same way as most of those other mm-hmm. people did. And then it really made me wonder, you know, is it is 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 this really possible? And um it, it was just a couple days later that I got a uh second survey. And that second survey was not about gratitude, but it was just the kind of thing that my friends send me. And it came from a group called Public Religion Research. And my friend who works there sent me this data about how they were looking at the emotional complexity of the American electorate going into the 2016 Hmm. election. So this is also data that's released in November 2015, like I said, within like three Mm -hmm. days, three days of each other. And um, the second survey said that Americans were angrier, more fearful, less hopeful, and more mistrustful Hmm. than we had been. Um, And this group had taken this survey before, so they had data to compare it with. And it was quite a dramatic change in a negative direction. And so the thing that surprised me was putting these two things, these two surveys back to back. Because I hmm. knew, I knew just enough about gratitude. Was you know this, this is shows up in a lot of popular literature. If you've ever watched Oprah, you've mm-hmm. probably heard this said, is that gratitude as a positive emotion drives out negative emotions. 
So if you're a grateful person, you can't be an angry person. Uh, you know, you can be, but you're, you, the states are going to alternate. You mm -hmm. can't be great, grateful and angry at the same time because of where gratitude and anger take place in your brains. They just hmm. can't coexist. And so, um, so I just thought to myself, okay, on one hand, people say that they're highly grateful, but on the other hand, people are saying that they're angry. Now, how can this be? And that set of surveys becomes the driving framework for the book because I, I, I call that the gratitude gap. How mm -hmm. is it that we can say on one hand to a survey taker that we feel grateful, but on the other hand, our public lives are clearly full of all these negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And I was on Twitter a lot today. And I can promise you there's a lot of negativity out there. <laughs> yep, totally. So, so, so that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, what I, what I concluded as I moved through the book is that we've essentially privatized our Just feelings of gratitude and we have not let them fully um, migrate mm -hmm. into our communal lives. And wouldn't that be interesting if we did? And so, mm -hmm. so that's the, that's the, those are some of the fundamental questions of the book. You point out that gratitude is infectious. It's, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's contagious, uh, in, as you kind of pointed out within our like individual lives. So if I'm, I'm grateful, it, it, it becomes contagious and infectious to others. But what, you're, what you also found, and this is part of the gratitude gap, is that it's not infectious between private lives and public life. So what, or, or there, there's yeah. some sort of, yeah, there's some sort of gap going there. So wh what did you find that made the contagiousness between the private life and public life of gratitude to be disconnected or not contagious? I, I think that has to do with our definition of gratitude mm. is that we tend to, uh, now this is not everyone. And part of the, the argument of the book is that gratitude is very complex and that it has four primary, we could call them faces. Mm. Uh, and so in the same way you have something like um, an Enneagram or you have a Myers-Briggs and people can take a test like that and say, okay, this is the, the style of how I relate, you know, to my work or to mm -hmm. other people, other people, I began to realize that these different, these different faces of gratitude, um, we, that we tend to lean more heavily into some than others. But mm -hmm. I think in, in the United States today, it's, uh, much more prominent when people think about gratitude is we're thinking about an emotion. We think about one aspect of, hmm. of, of gratitude. And so if we just think of it as an emotion, um, you know, emotions and feelings are kind of random and ad hoc and they come mm -hmm. and go as they come, and go as they will. But another face, as it were, another mode of gratitude is that it's a practice or an ethic. It's something that we can choose to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the primary disconnect comes is that some of us feel grateful on one hand, but we forget 
that it's more than just that random moment of getting a gift and feeling like, oh gosh, you know, somebody cares about me. Um, or somebody's paying attention or the universe must love me because I got this great report from my doctor or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we can actually in our lives make choices whereby um, we can practice gratitude in such a way that it becomes a way of life. It becomes an ethic that we mm-hmm. live that we live by. So I think that's part of the personal disconnect is people don't make the the journey from emotion to ethic is that usually they just let it kind of sit in one place. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so for me, that was a, that was a really big deal. Um, as I wrote the book, the book is very personal and it's also mm-hmm. full, full of stuff that's going on in the news. And so it's, a, it's an interesting kind of combination of personal struggle and also what's happening in the world around us. But um, that's one thing I really learned is that Mm -hmm. I I actually have a very high caliber, I think, of appreciation for sunrises or people giving me things. And I feel feel very grateful when someone does give me a gift. It doesn't happen every week, but I certainly feel it when people do that. Mm -hmm. But through the writing of the book, I began to build in certain kinds of of habits and practices uh, that made gratitude a much more sustained reality for me. And Mm. so for myself, I think I just developed a fuller um, and deeper understanding of gratitude by putting it in both ranges, in both the the range of emotions and the range of ethics. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the, the numbers would have come out very differently if the question was uh, posed instead of, do you feel grateful throughout a week? Instead, do you practice gratefulness or practice gratitude throughout a week? Do you think those numbers would have really changed? Well, I think if the question had been asked, do you practice gratitude on a weekly basis? I think people would say yes, because people like to get A's on exams, you know? And so if somebody asks you that question, but I, you know what? I bet if you ask the question, have you written a thank you note in the last week? Hmm. Or have you um, told a stranger who gave you, who did something kind for you that you appreciated them? I mean, if you ask like the specific things, which I think would be mm-hmm. an absolutely fascinating thing to do. I bet you'd get pretty low numbers. mentioned throughout the book and and even throughout this interview that gratitude is certainly valued in private lives, but researchers have noticed a growing disconnect between gratitude and private lives and public life. Uh, You also point out midway through your book that American men score much lower in gratefulness than many other people groups. Uh, Yet American men make up the large majority of leadership in public life. So how have you noticed gratitude change as the cultural differences come to a head where you have uh, a number of people who uh, promote gender equality and uh, especially gender equality in leadership in public life. And then you have this huge contingency, especially we're seeing it with the Trump administration, where a a very patriarchal overtone and and a number of men who are very unwilling to to give up their their privilege. 
uh, or, or to relinquish their privilege. So how have you noticed uh, gratefulness and gratitude change with the, the sort of opposing camps coming out ahead uh, in 2018 in American politics? Yeah. Um, one of the primary things I thought about before I wrote the book was that there are some excellent books on gratitude. I mean, I really worried, <laughs> frankly. Mm -hmm. It was like, what in the world does the, why does the world need a, a book on gratefulness from me? Um, and what can I contribute in any unique mm. way, way to this conversation? And part of that was, I really wondered, you know, why does the world need a, another book by a privileged white lady? Mm. You know, and so I realized that the, the racial questions in particular were really important questions. So part of the, the narrative of the book is to explore what I think is a, 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 an invisible argument that we're having in our culture um, about gratitude. And you talk about it in relationship to um, men. And that's true, mm -hmm. is that American men register lower on scales of gratitude always than American women do. Hmm. And if you look at, there was one global study that looked at several different countries and uh, including Europe, Israel, um, uh, it was, I think it was Germany, Israel, and maybe one or two more countries. But on this international study, American men just outpaced the whole rest of the world to the bottom of the list. Hmm. And so, you know, you think about the, the culture of American men especially white men it's a culture of achievement it's right. a it's a culture of um i i'll get mine or i deserve such and such mm -hmm. um you I know pulled it up by my own bootstraps exactly mm -hmm. it, radical individualism and there's a, almost a resentment of the idea and we heard it even in politics in the last election when obama and romney were arguing and Obama pointed out at one point that, you know, a part of the reason why small businesses are successful is that there's been huge community in, you know, investment mm -hmm. in things like public libraries and public schools and roads and a post office and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you have all those things, you know, basically Obama was saying is that uh, and you, you're a citizen, you live in a country where there are all these gifts and that you didn't. You didn't do anything to get those. Those are gifts that your ancestors built and gave to you. And um, so people took that as meaning that Obama was saying that they didn't earn what they had worked for. Hmm. And so there was a whole commercial about, you know, oh, people getting up and saying, you know, I built this business and I, you know, <laughs> I earned this. And, and that, you know, looking back, that was part of an argument of gratitude is hmm. that the the people who feel like you know they're they've done the work no one helped them mm -hmm. and there's no one to thank except for themselves and so that inhibits gratitude because what gratitude of course is at its most basic is the recognition that we live in a gifted universe Mm -hmm. And and that all of us, first of all, are receivers and that you can never you can't build something and you can't give something away unless you've received it first. And um, the Christian story, which I care about very deeply, mm -hmm. is actually a story about that. 
the Christian story is a story about God creating a universe that is gifted mm -hmm. and then placing humanity in this garden, this, this cosmos of gifts. Mm -hmm. And then our job becomes um, cultivating those gifts and distributing those gifts in such a way that it benefits everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so the, the central story of the Christian narrative is a story about receiving gifts and mm. then, and then passing on gifts between one another. And that's really not the American story. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, at all. And so, so, so that whole business of gender really plays into it very strong in the United States because we live in a culture that is already predisposed to think about, you know, pulling itself up by its bootstraps. It's particularly strong for men. But there's the other story. The other story is the, about living in a universe of giftedness. Mm -hmm. um, and that story is more often experienced by people who are marginal community in marginal communities. Mm. And so part of what I did when I started the project is I started talking to my friends who were African-American pastors, who were immigrant from immigrant communities. And I thought a lot about my experience as um, a woman. You know, I am a white woman. But I'm still a woman, and that mm -hmm. means that there is a certain level of marginality that even white women do actually feel mm -hmm. in relationship to um, our lives. And so, so I I just followed those trails and um, listening to those friends and exploring the sort of the margins of theology from the scripture. Um, really began to cast a new light for me on gratitude. And it was very exciting is that I didn't see gratitude as a, a sort of a, an exchange. I think that most, most men in America want to be seen as being givers or benefactors mm -hmm. and that they, they like it when people say thank you to them, but they right. don't want, they don't want to be receivers who have to participate in a circle of reciproca reciprocity, excuse mm -hmm. me. And yet um, other people in other communities in our society more um, ably understand that there are no gifts unless somebody else, God, the universe, whatever, mm -hmm. um, has, has put them there. Is that no one, no one creates the gifts we all receive the gifts mm. and so so that was a real eye-opening moment for me as i explored this subject so you talk about that how, how that's uh, infiltrated and uh, manifested politically but you also mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how religiously and theologically the the difference between what you're um, suggesting in Grateful versus what has been suggested in white American evangelicalism. And so you talk about how white American evangelicalism has often taught about great gratitude in a transactional way, uh, mm -hmm. where you don't just simply receive that, like you did something to have to receive something. So there's a transaction that's being made. And so you right. suggest um, through the book that gratitude uh, uh, is, unlike white evangelicalism, uh, under, uh, or that we ought to understand gratitude 
that it, it is the ability to embrace what is rather than uh, this sort of transactional way. And that life yeah. is first and foremost a gift. Uh, Correct. And you know, there's certain reasoning behind white American evangelicalism, why it teaches gratitude in a transactional way. Uh, but I think your particular understanding and what you suggest throughout the book is subverting that very reasoning that they have. So how does your understanding of gratitude, uh, a gratitude that just is, uh, the, the gift of life is um, rather than what it ought to be or uh, the transactional way, how does your understanding of gratitude subvert the white American evangelicalism understanding of gratitude? Typically, and I, I think that this is true for white evangelicalism, but it's also true in a lot of other communities as well. And um, what that is, the I, gratitude often functions in a very hierarchical way. Mm-hmm. And that is that benefactors um, are above beneficiaries. Right. And so givers sort of reach down to receivers. So we have this idea of a hierarchy of gifts and givers and receivers. And um, if you're a benefactor, you deign, in a sense, to give a gift to these these poor people who mm-hmm. need who need a gift. And then what happens, of course, is the people who have received the gift have the responsibility to say thank you. They have the the responsibility mm. to do something in return. And so what happens is we have structured gratitude in this hierarchical fashion. And what it creates is debts. It creates debts mm-hmm. of gratitude. And we actually talk like that. We say things, you know, somebody gives you a gift. You might say in a very offhanded way, oh, I'm in your debt. Mm. Or I owe, owe you a debt of gratitude. Now, I can't say so much for for millennials, <laughs> but, but I can say that that was that's relatively common language right. up until fairly recently. And so it's the idea of indebtedness, of course, that I think a lot of that we were talking a minute ago about white American men, you know, they don't want to be in debt. Right. They don't want to be in debt to somebody who's giving them a gift. And so, you know, rather not get the gift at all. Um, and so, so that structure of hierarchy and that structure of indebtedness is part of the way that we understand what gratitude is. And so, so that translates into, um, interestingly enough, I think salvation Mm. where we have it in our mind that God, who is the ultimate benefactor is up there. God's above us, Mm -hmm. which is something I've already dealt with in several of the yep. books that I've written. It's like, no, God is with us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people think of God as being up there. And so God is the ultimate giver. He's up there. And he's a he. And has to be, uh, of course. That's right. He has to be because he's a benefactor. Mm-hmm. And so men are more likely to be benefactors than women. So, so anyway, he gives the gift of his son who to die on a cross. And, and so we are the beneficiaries of that gift. And so what happens is in the theological transaction that is the, form, the, the basis of evangelical religion, then we, as the beneficiaries, have to do something. Hmm. And what do we do? We accept Jesus into our hearts and we say, thank you. And then, of course, if you do that, then you're going to be saved 
So you return thanks. You you give your heart to Jesus in this reciprocal fashion. And then one day you get the ultimate reward, and that is you get to go up to heaven and be with God. Well, essentially what that is is that's turning salvation into a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. Is that God has done something, sent a gift, in order to get something from us in return. Our praise, our worship, our hearts, our Mm -hmm. faith, or whatever it is. And so at the heart of uh, white evangelical communities is a transaction of hierarchy that is established hierarchically. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not grace because grace is a free gift with absolutely nothing. Right. With absolutely nothing you do. And so um, the fundamental vision of the New Testament is that of the idea of free gifts and that free gifts just are. Mm-hmm. And um, that you don't, you don't earn them. There's no obligation on the part of anyone ever mm-hmm. to reply to getting a free gift. The only thing that happens in the the biblical world, or the biblical vision, theological vision of the Bible, is that when you encounter the power of that those gifts. That, that you change, mm. not because you're obligated to change or not because God wants some quid pro quo from you that's going to react in, or that's going to transpire in your salvation. You simply change because the idea of living in a universe of gifts that are completely and totally free, that are not based on anything we've ever done, nor are they given to us with any expectation that we'll ever even do anything in return. Mm. That, the, the, the idea of that is so phenomenal and so overwhelming that we encounter it and that becomes the moment of gratitude. That becomes the moment of, oh my gosh, this is who God is. This is what this, this is what this universe is all about. Just living in this kind of abundance of love and grace and mercy and, and the possibilities of of peace and justice, and they're all just lying around us all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that that makes us different. And so what then happens is it's not an obligation to respond, but because our hearts then are full of this sense of wonder and surprise at this thing that we hadn't seen before or that we hadn't even known existed before, that we then turn around and simply pass on the gifts. And passing on the gifts does not result in us being saved. It simply means that we are actually a, setting a table of gifts in the world and that our job is to sit in the, on, around that table and to share with all who have gathered there, inviting, constantly inviting more people to the table and then sharing the gifts around the table. And no one is ultimately a giver. No one is ultimately a receiver. Gifts just move through the community and gifts just move from one set of hands to another. And so this, this is the vision of the, of the new Testament about gifts and givers. It's Mm non-hierarchical and it's not about a quid pro quo. As a matter of fact, it's, it's the opposite of quid pro quo. It's it's pro bono, Mm -hmm. which means simply for the good for free. And, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that people who are Protestants in particular who don't understand that 
that's a re- that's a real problem because right. the fun the the foundational insight of the the reformation was the idea of grace alone hmm. um luther and calvin and cramner later on with the anglican reformation and certainly the anabaptists and all of them were building out of the idea that they had really encountered, they felt like they'd encountered it for the first time. And that was the idea that you didn't do anything to be saved. Mm. You just, you just lived in this universe of grace. And you, the only thing was to let yourself be surprised by it, to be overwhelmed by it. And that, that is the gift is that God is here with us now. Grace, love, mercy, justice, all the time. And it's it's simply our job to let those gifts sweep over us, to, to see those gifts, to hold those gifts in our hand, let them transform us, and to pass them on to whoever comes by. And so that's, that's kind of it. That was how radical the Protestant Reformation was in this mm. first generation. And, uh, you know, it's hard to live like that. Um, People are always trying to turn free gifts into quid pro quos. Protestants did it very, very well. And, and, And contemporary American evangelicalism is a great example of a quid pro quo religion. concept that I fell in love with uh, while reading was that gratitude and play are two peas in a pod. Yeah. They, they interplay with one another. And liturgy, I think, functions very much in our lives uh, in, in a playful way. It allows us to play into the work of, of the people, which is, you know, liturgy. Uh, it, it allows us to play into uh, the, the work of the people and the work of God in a, in a time and place and a space in very physical and transcendent ways. And so I, I was curious, what are some ways that you think churches can better intersect the playfulness of liturgy with gratitude? Um, it would be nice if they were just aware of what you said, <laughs> because I think that, you know, sometimes we think liturgy is so, I'm, I'm an Episcopalian, mm-hmm. you know, we think of liturgy is so deadly seriously, you know, right. you have, you have to do it right. And if you don't do it right, it's like God is going to be angry or the, the people on the, you know, the altar guild are going to be angry. And one of those two things is not very good. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, but liturgy really is about playfulness and, um, it 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 always should be so to so to recapture that sense of joy would be pretty awesome, and um, you know, liturgy in churches often centers on the table, mm-hmm. and so th- there's a kind of a double whammy um, within churches is the idea of this um, you know sort of stylized play that we call liturgy along with the gifts of God for the people of God, mm-hmm. the, ta- the table, those two things absolutely are happening at the very same moment. And so what they should do, I mean, what, what, what you hope happens there is that what is induced are both the feelings of gratitude, surprise, wonder, awe, relief, uh, you know, just this whole complex of things that we call gratitude. 
but then also shape us in that in the ethics of the table so that when we go to other parts of the world and we are you know playing as it were um in our jobs or in our family life or or whatever is that we're carrying that ethical vision of gratitude of the overlap between play joy happy, happiness all those kinds of things and and the table and so so um i i just hope the churches kind of get that hmm. uh from reading my reading my book and um can every every congregation has to explore that territory i think differently and uniquely mm -hmm. uh, within within a sense of their own identity um but it would be really helpful if we stopped with the constant I mean, I, I actually, I appreciate silence in churches, mm -hmm. some, something I feel very needful of and I think is very beautiful. But I don't want people to be silent because, oh, we have to be reverent, you know, mm -hmm. God God would be offended if a child ever talked, you know. Um, but that it, it's not about that kind of reverence, the demand from a holy God of, you know, total god gets the only voice in the room as it were right. um but that uh we can play can be very reverent and certainly tables full of food and where you're celebrating abundance but that can be incredibly reverent in the sense mm -hmm. that it's sacred it really is holy work and so i think we kind of have to you know kind of let go of some of the stuff that we used to identify with to say that one thing is holy or one thing is sacred is one thing is reverent and that's silence. Right. Children don't speak or whatever it is. Um, and, and to create just a bigger uh, stage mm -hmm. of that. And, and that would, that's a pretty exciting idea. I mean, it's just that it, it, it's play. Like if you watch children play, they take it serious, but they don't take it like literal, right? Like they, like, and that's the whole point of play is it, it's not meant to yeah. be literal. And, and it, there, there's a, there is a, a sense that play requires uh, a holding of lightness uh, that uh, that doesn't take it from seriousness to literalness. Uh, you talk about uh, also within your book that gratitude is a form of resistance. And mm -hmm. in the last couple of years with with uh, with the Trump presidency, we've seen this surgence of people uh, kind of have even hashtagged it as like the resistance. And uh, I, I want to <laughs> say he was even part of like the, the new Star Wars movies. And um, mm -hmm. so that's certainly becoming like part of the consciousness uh, of people who are deeply disturbed by the Trump administration and the rise of Trumpism and misogyny and, and kind of the, the revelation uh, that so many people didn't realize was still harboring within, uh, within a large part of America uh, of misogyny and racism and xenophobia. So th there's certainly been a resistance to that. Uh, and you talk about how gratitude is resistance. Uh, but what are what are the ways that gratitude becomes resistance in our in our maybe private lives and in our public life? That's one of the most important questions in the book. And um, if we understand gratitude as quid pro quo, 
if we understand it as a hierarchical relationship between givers and receivers, mm-hmm. that then gratitude becomes acquiescence. Hmm. Because the receiver has to submit to the giver. Mm-hmm. And that's often been the way that gratitude has been used in that hierarchical way politically. Mm-hmm. It was used that way, it was used that way um, in the ancient Roman Empire. But if you want to think about it more recently, um, it was definitely used that way in 19th century America against slaves. Mm. And so in southern 19th century, 18th, 19th century culture, you have an incredible hierarchical pyramids shaped system mm-hmm. where you have planters and masters on top. And it's it's a it's a social structure that goes down until the slaves are at the bottom. It's a racialized system. It's a genderized system. Mm-hmm. And it's an economic system and political system. And so one of the justifications that developed for holding the slaves as the 19th century wore on and people were thinking, you know, really, this does not work with the Constitution and this does not work with the Bible. The planter class was in real trouble because they had to figure out, well, how in the world do we justify this? And one of the justifications was using gratitude. And this Mm. is the way this is how they did it. They would say to Northerners, mostly, and abolitionists who were criticizing them, oh, well, you know, the slaves, they're, they actually, they're actually grateful to us because we, the masters, have deigned to give them work to do. And they have clothes, you know, they didn't mention that they're like rags. Um, and we feed them. You know, mm-hmm. who, care, who cares if it's moldy bread or bad soup um, or, you know, occasionally a cabbage or something horrible. But I, I mean, actually a cabbage. But, um, you know, it's so it's the food isn't great. It, we've, we've given them a place to live. But, you know, there are holes in the roof and they're horrible hovels. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest justification was and, of course, the slaves must be really grateful to us because we took them away from all that paganism in Africa. Mm-hmm. And we brought them here, and we gave them Christianity. And so in that sense, gratitude, the idea that the the patriarchy, the masters, the privileged people were giving gifts to the slaves was a way of trying to hold the system together. Oh, that without, without, without us, these people would be miserable. Think of horrible lives they would have. And they even would talk about that. You know, they'd talk about Black people who might be poor in northern cities where they were free but their lives were awful and so they said so so the masters use gratitude and gifts and giving to justify the whole system and then of course they also tried to use it to control the slaves and so not only were they saying that to northerners but they were also saying it to the 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 people held in slavery and so they would literally demand gratitude out of the people who they'd enslaved And the people who were held then in slavery, they have a choice, you know, do they say thank you or do they not? And in the same way that ingratitude in the ancient Roman Empire, when Jesus was doing his ministry, ingratitude was actually punishable by death. Hmm. If you were not grateful to the Roman emperor, you had committed a crime against a set of laws that was referred to as the obsequium. And the obsequium were laws that said that you had to literally appreciate 
people who were higher status people and who gave you things. And so if you violated the obsequium, one of the crimes against the obsequium was ingratitude. Mm-hmm. And, and so that carries through Western culture. And in the 19th century, if a slave didn't say thank you to a master, you know, you could be in a very bad place. Mm-hmm. And so, so gratitude was a force. It was a, it was a actual force within this horrible structure to hold the whole thing together and to make sure that people at the bottom acquiesced to the power that was above them. So if you have gratitude as a quid pro in a quid pro quo system, Mm -hmm. what that that really is, is a corruption of gratitude. We know, we know that Uh, there is no human being that wants to be on the bottom end of that exchange. And if you don't want to be on the bottom end of it, you sure as heck should not ever be on the top end of it. Right. And you shouldn't want to be on the top end of it. I mean, but anybody who's like the other human impulse, the human impulse that is, I think, our more sinful impulse is survival, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, well, if this is the structure of society, I better climb up as high as I can get in order to get out of the way so I can just save myself. But the truth of the matter is, is if you just have a chance to breathe and think about it, the, the, the real answer is to take down the whole freaking system. Right. And, and put in a different system. And that's, of course, what the New Testament is about. Um, you know, the New Testament is not about that system. It's about undermining that system. And so if we understand gratitude not as quid pro quo, but as grace and pro bono, mm. Then all of a sudden, that that vision, the table, the community of people, all of whom are receivers and all of whom are simultaneously givers, the hierarchy disappears. The what what emerges then is this community that is schooled in abundance, which is the whole vision of the Hebrew scriptures. The idea of Sabbath, you have a Sabbath once a week to remind you that that's the dream of God, that you don't work, not because you were trying to rest up a day from the factory because it was so horrible, mm-hmm. um, but you you actually didn't work because that was the vision of what, what God had intended. God had intended a, a universe that was completely contingent on the gifts that were already in the universe. So it's a, a, it's a vision of abundance where people don't have to slave, don't have to work mm-hmm. in order to have the bread that they eat, where instead they're simply bread. And so every, every Sabbath, that's what the Jews were celebrating. They were celebrating the idea of abundance and longing for that moment in which the universe would be restored to that mm-hmm. vision of, of abundance. And so... That's what the Eucharist is about in the New Testament. That's what the Last Supper is about. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who forgive us our debts as 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 we forgive those who hold our debts. Mm-hmm. And and um, also the idea of of um, never participating in a quid pro quo. Jesus, somebody asked Jesus, you know, about dinner invitations. And uh, dinner invitations were currency for this whole quid pro quo system. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you this. When you give a dinner party, don't invite your friends and don't invite your family. Don't invite anybody to your dinner party who can repay you. 
And as soon as Jesus says that, it's like, oh my gosh, he's actually talking about the Roman practice of quid pro quo and dinner invitations. Mm. And then he says in the next breath, he says, but I tell you that when you give a dinner party, invite the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, and um, you do that because they can never repay you. And right there, Jesus is saying, that's the point. You're supposed to live beyond quid pro quo. And so your question was, how is gratitude resistance? That's how gratitude is resistant. Resistance right there. Gratitude resists hierarchy. It resists patriarchy. It resists oppression. It resists being used for violence against others. It resists all of those deep corruptions that humankind has given itself over to. And instead, it opens up the possibility of an entirely different way of being in the world. Let's keep going down that line. I I really like that. Um, So this podcast is called Religionless Church, uh, which is a play on words of Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity. And I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Bonhoeffer's concept of religionless Christianity, with it being a critique of of the Christian nationalism uh, of, of Nazi Germany. Right. And and so religionless Christianity, at least my interpretation of it, is that it it is a subversion of these of these hierarchical systems that developed um, not only in Nazi Germany, but I think they can be applied to to uh, 19th century Southern slave culture. You know, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so let's keep going down that line of your the last point you were just making in the last question. What ways does your understanding of gratitude that you suggest in grateful speak to the ways of of religionless Christianity? It's interesting that you mentioned Bonhoeffer because I talk about Bonhoeffer just a bit mm-hmm. in, in Grateful. And um, one of the quotes that I use at the beginning of the book is in that section where he talks, where he, he lays out this crazy idea of religionless Christianity. Mm-hmm. And for, for 80 years, ever since he wrote that down, we've been kind of wondering what the heck did he mean? <laughs> <Yeah. You know? laughs> Theologians have been arguing about it for for almost a century now. Um, but um one thing he clearly did mean is that for Bonhoeffer, it had something to do with gratitude. Mm. And in letters and pa- letters and papers from prison, he talks about gratitude more than he really does in any of a, his other books. Mm-hmm. And so there he is behind bars, and it, he he is being held by a terrible hierarchy, mm-hmm. oppressive system. That he has been, you know, in a sense, when you resist a system like this, you're you're an ingrate, mm-hmm. you know. And so, in that sense, Jesus was an ingrate, um, and in this sense, Bonhoeffer was an ingrate. And um, he says that the primary thing that we as human beings need to understand is that none of us have anything by the work of our own hands, but mm-hmm. that instead, everything that we do have is a gift. And so, so Bonhoeffer is going back to some really basic things while he's in mm. prison. And he realizes that, that, you know, even there when he's being held in prison and it seems like he's not free, that the, the, the truest kind of freedom is recognizing that this thing here is the, the, the hierarchical system of, of oppression is 
it's real. It has the power to hold you in prison, but it doesn't actually have the power to take away who you really are. Mm. It does not have the power ultimately to dislodge the truest, um, the truest and most beautiful things in the universe. And that is that even when you're behind bars, you still live in a universe of abundance. Mm. Um, that there are, that there still is the capacity for every one of us as human beings, even in the worst possible moment through, through that depth to say, I am alive or there is love or I see a bird or whatever it is, and mm. that those things become gifts. Elie Wiesel also during the Holocaust um, wrote about the same. Well, he didn't write about during the Holocaust, but after the Holocaust, mm-hmm. um, he writes about what how he survived, and one of the reasons he survived was by that same essential observation that Bonhoeffer made, and then Bonhoeffer, of course, is hanged. Um, but uh, Wiesel survives, and then he talks about how it was that gratitude was the the pathway through the violence and the strength and the strength and empowerment to live. Mm. And so, so I think that you know I'm taking Bonhoeffer and Ellie Wiesel seriously, mm. and and of course some um, women. For centuries have known that gratitude is an important place of resistance. In the book, I actually write about mm-hmm. Jane Austen and mm-hmm. her Jane Austen's literature as um, a literature of resistance, which is a different way of kind of viewing Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in the also in Grateful, I quote an enormous number of African American women poets, and um, mm-hmm. I think that their poetry comes out of the community of of alternative gratitude that was formed during slavery. Mm. And so, so in order for us to, to live differently, I think we have to be able to identify the friends and theologians and poets and novelists and, and the people who have lived those alternative that, that, that the alternative, which is the real thing. Um, and that they have Mm. lived it lived it well in the world and take their wisdom to heart and then say, okay, well, what, how does that work now? You know? And so, so, you know, you have, I know why the caged bird sings, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's the, it's, that's what Bonhoeffer was saying. That was what Wazell was saying from the depths of Auschwitz. That's it, it is that even when you think that all is lost, that if you can still sing, if you still, if you can still sense beauty and wonder, if you can still feel the power of life, um, and that becomes your, your place of remaking the world. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Oh, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm all over social <laughs> media. <laughs> um, I, I'd love to have people follow me on Twitter. I have a website where people can go and see what I'm doing. And they can also sign up for, I, I have a twice monthly newsletter that I send out that's like a private blog where I just sort of share what I'm thinking about or what I'm working on. If I, you know, this month there's been a lot about 
um, the new book. But I don't generally use it. As, I don't think of it as a sales tool. I really think of it as a way of entering into conversation with the people who are most interested in, in the work that I'm doing. And uh, so I have that. And then I also have a public Facebook page. I don't do other forms of social media. I have on Snapchat. No, my, <laughs> my 20 year old daughter just got rid of Snapchat. She said it was too, uh, it was like too obsessive for her, yep. <laughs> but I thought about Instagram and maybe that's a way I'll go sooner or later. But right now the, the, the best place is to probably catch me on Twitter. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you so much, Diana. This has just been a delightful conversation. And uh, I am grateful that you uh, decided to to have this conversation. Well, I appreciate being asked, Mason. I wish you much success with uh, creating these kinds of conversations with your friends. And, I'm, you know, if we can find a religionless church, I'll, I'll sign up for that membership. Awesome. <laughs> favorite things about doing this project, Religionless Church, is meeting some of the people who have been so influential in my life, in my spiritual journey. And Diana's one of those people. And so throughout the whole episode, I'm just like beaming with like this smile that I couldn't get rid of uh, because I was so excited to be talking to somebody who's been so monumentally important in my life. I mean, just think back to the times that you've met really important people in your lives, you know, whether it's like an athlete or a celebrity um, or just kind of anybody in general that maybe you've like never met or, you know, has some sort of fame. And then you do meet them. You're just like kind of awkward and overly excited. Uh, And then you kind of realize that like this is just a, a normal person and they just have really great things to say or have done really great work. And uh but despite you know even with all the great work that they've done they're still like a normal person even like before this interview with diana uh i think her husband was helping her out with uh kind of figuring out the dynamics of skype and making sure that all worked and then she got like some tea so it took a little bit of time to get that ready and just like you know i'm sitting there chatting with her and you know she's trying to figure out the technology of this and then she's getting tea ready and i'm like She's just a normal person, uh, and she just has great things to say on top of being really a really normal person. So I just love that about uh, this project of meeting these people uh, who have been so influential in my life and then realizing they're just really normal people. Uh, I hope the people out there that listen to me and find me somewhat influential in their spiritual lives, I, I know there's a few people who have Uh, connected with me uh, via social media and they've talked about how even in the few months that they've known me uh, that I've been like somewhat shapeful in their spiritual journey and it's even really odd for me to think that like I'm that to other people and so I just want you to all know like how awkward and weird and maybe you could even say abnormal I don't even say I wouldn't I wouldn't even say I'm really normal how abnormal I am um but I really am. Like, I'm a just kind of regular dude doing this out of my bedroom in my apartment. Just like, you know? So, anyway, I hope you enjoyed Diana. I hope you enjoyed Peter the Canary Keeper. I love Tyler's voice. I love all the work that he's doing. So, I'll make sure to uh, have those links in the description and be sure to check them out. 
uh, I'm sure Diana would not mind you getting her book if you aren't you if you haven't already. And then I'm sure Tyler would love for you to uh, click on uh, some SoundCloud and check out more of his uh, tunes. He's got a whole plethora of other songs on SoundCloud, so I'm sure he would love for you to check out some of his work. So, without further ado, again, I thank you so very much to be listening to Religionless Church. Good